Hello and welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Today we're going to be speaking to Ian Forrester, the CEO of David. Ian, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Um, so we're going to be talking about effective advertising today, Ian. Um, specifically, what makes some advertising creative more effective than other advertising creative, I guess, and what we can learn from that. So um, to kick us off, as we do um, with all of our guests, could you give us a little bit of a, an idea on uh, who David are, what you do, who you do it with, and uh, why people want you to do it, please? Yeah, sure. So David is a creative effectiveness business. So we're focused entirely on the effectiveness delivered by the creative itself in advertising campaigns. We've been born out of Unruly. So I myself led the Unruly Insight team for about seven years before starting David. And all that work we did at Unruly around emotions and advertising and advertising effectiveness, effectively, we're taking it to the next level at David. So we're working across a bunch of international agencies, media agencies, creative agencies, brands as well. Um, and we're delivering studies around attention, emotions and memory structure. So those are the, the key drivers of effectiveness as we'll come on to talk about in the podcast. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, you mentioned uh, emotions there. I know from uh, kind of my own learning and research that creating an emotional um, connection uh, between the the advertising creative and the audience is really important as it relates to to memory. Um, how important is it? Um, is it true to say that all effective advertising must first elicit some sort of emotional response? And if that is the case, then uh, why so? Yeah, emotions are absolutely critical to advertising effectiveness because it's the emotion which generates a memory structure and it's the memory structure which drives the action. So the goal of all advertising should be to create an intense positive emotion. As humans, we are programmed to remember stuff which makes us feel a certain way, which makes us feel either good or bad at an intense level. So if you imagine from an evolutionary point of view, I'm walking along, I get bitten by a rat, and that's a really unpleasant experience. I feel a, an intense negative emotion. I know not to go near rats but again, so my, my body has remembered that, my brain has remembered that, and that's then a deeply ingrain, ingrained memory structure which is going to influence my action going forward. Similar with positive emotions, if I'm out foraging and I find a berry bush, and fill my face with berries. They're super tasty and I feel really great afterwards. So I'm going to remember where that berry bush was and go back to it next spring and, um, and get my, my berries again because that was an intense positive emotional response. So it's those emotional responses which we are programmed as humans to remember. And it's that memory which then drives our actions. So advertising is all about emotional response. Okay. So if we think about ADA, attention, interest, desire, and action, I guess um, we, we speak a lot about attention on this podcast, about how we get it, where we get it, um, how much we get of it. Um, I, I guess what we're talking about here is the the interest and the desire piece is creating an emotion that um, kind of links the attention to the memory um, in, a, in, a, in a certain sense. So um I know that you um, that you track emotions, um, uh, David. You have thirty nine, I believe, um, hence the uh, the name David thirty nine, um, as the sort of sweet emotions that you sort of um, that, that you measure. Could you talk talk to us a little bit about why there's thirty nine of them? Um, why specifically thirty nine, uh, or is that just that just happens to be the uh, the number of emotions that there are in the human? I don't know. Um, and uh, how you track them specifically, uh, and, and how that helps uh, marketers. 
Yeah, of course. So we arrived at 39. We weren't planning to arrive at 39. That's just the number we we ended up with. It's actually quite catchy, so we quite like it. But no, it wasn't planned. Um, but where have the David 39 come from? Essentially, we've scoured academia to ingest the, the latest studies from academia and have those inform our thinking around emotions. Now, emotions within academia is a really complex space. There is a lot of debate around what constitutes an emotion and how emotions can be trapped. And there's a bunch of difference between cultures and countries. Um, so it's a super, super complex space. And there's new work coming out literally every single day on emotions within academia. So a big part of what we do at David is stay on top of that emotional work. Because emotions are such a powerful part of advertising, we really need to understand them as well as we possibly can. So staying on top of that work is a big part of the work we do at David. And then we need to because there's, there's a bunch of really deep theoretical work that's coming out of academia, which isn't particularly useful for practitioners. And it's our job to then translate that into something which is useful for practitioners. And how we've done that so far, and, and this is continuously evolving, it, it may very well be different in six months' time, but how we've done that so far is by taking the emotional lists which are coming out of various studies. So we started with the original work from Unruly. Unruly tests for 18 psychological responses, which itself came out of work from Karen Nelson Field and Ehrenberg Bass back in 2012 and 2013, when Karen wrote The Science of Sharing. And she actually used about eight emotion words. And then she had coders, uh, like pairs of, pairs of emotions in that particular piece of work. And we built on that to get to 18 with Unruly. And we built on that again, looking at work from Berkeley and Stanford and a bunch of other institutions. Um, and the, the reason we've done all that work is that so much of advertising effectiveness can be explained by the emotional response which creative is evoking. And that granularity of emotions is absolutely critical to that explanation. So we wanted to get to a list which was very granular, but not so granular that it became unwieldy. So it's like a, a balancing act, which we've, which we've done there. And what we're finding is with the 39 emotions as an output, you get a a deep enough understanding of both the positive and negative emotions to generate very, very useful insight, understanding the why content is working or not working, which you can then use to set strategy going forward. So it just becomes a very practical thing that marketers can use to help them set their strategy. Okay. And how specifically do you measure those emotions? So we ask people to watch content and we simply ask them, which of these emotions did you feel? So once the, the hard part of the work was the creation of the framework. And once we've got the framework, that then allows us to collect that emotional data in a structured way. Because what I found out is that after years of work at Unruly, consumers don't find it very easy to articulate their emotions. So if you show them a piece of content, and you say, which emotions did you feel when watching this content? People will come up with all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff, most of which is not an emotional response. So you need that framework. You need to provide them with that framework. So once you've got the framework, you can show them all the positive emotions in the framework and all the negative emotions in the framework separately. And they can pick, they say, oh yes, I felt admiration or inspiration or nostalgia or pride or whatever. And it just makes them much easier, which it makes it much easier for the person to select. Um, so yeah, that's how that, that data is collected. Okay. Um, and is that um, in aggregate across the piece of content? So let's say the 90 <clears throat> second piece of content, um, do you ask them to watch the entire 90 seconds and then ask them the questions? Or is it a case of 
um, breaking the content down into certain scenes or parts? Or, you know, how do you kind of figure out what part of the content is doing what? Because some stories kind of take you to the depths of despair before bringing you up to um, the, the, you know, the highs of uh, resolution, like that there may be different emotions felt at different times, right? Absolutely, yeah. So the David 39 is an aggregate. But then to understand what it was about the creative which was evoking those emotions, we have a couple of techniques. One is facial coding. So we're filming people's faces as they're watching content to see which parts of the content they're smiling or frowning at. And that enables us to see which which parts people are responding negatively or positively to. We're also ingesting a bunch of creative attribute data from computer vision APIs. So every ad that we test, we're sending it to various computer vision APIs. So services like Google Vision and Amazon Recognition and Clarify and so on. And these services are giving us a very deep understanding on a frame-by-frame basis of what is happening within that creative, both visually and orally. Now, we're taking that data, all that creative attribute data, and we're taking our human response data, and our system is understanding the connections between these two data sets. This is a lot of the magic of David. So we're understanding what it was about the creative, which was driving a response within all the historical data which we've collected in the past. We can then reference that historical data when we're testing creative for clients. So just to give you a really really simple example, if we're testing an ad from a client which has a dog in it, our system will say, right, there's a dog in this ad. It will reference all the creative which we've tested in the past, which has a dog in it, and it will see what emotions the dog has tended to correlate with. So let's say we're seeing within our historical data set that the dog is correlating with warmth, for example. Now, if we're if we have reporting, if we have consumers reporting that they are feeling warmth when seeing a dog in this particular ad that we're testing, our system will say, hey, we've seen that before. It's very likely, therefore, that it's the dog that it's evoking warmth in this particular ad. So that allows us to explain what's happening in that creative and understand which creative attributes were driving the emotion. So we we talk about bringing the why, like David, explaining why creative is working or not. And the why comes down to which emotions are being evoked, but also what was it about the creative which was evoking those emotions. And to get to there, we're referencing that historical data which we've collected. Okay. So do you have like um internal or otherwise, but do you have like a league table of things that create certain emotions? So if I wanted to build, if I wanted to build a creative that was going to make consumers feel um uh, you know an emotion of trust then these are the top five things that tend to over time um ha- you know show that um or have been shown to um elicit uh, emo- that, you know that emotion do you have that sort of like for trends i think it's the way my mind works obviously this is extremely detailed nuanced work and it's different on every occasion but i'm just trying to think of some of the some of the top trends we can take out of it. If you think of the work that System One did around um, the Orlando Wood in his book Lemon, they they kind of they they studied fifteen years of, of TV advertising, and they were saying that it's the five brain elements of advertising that tend to be the most effective. So things like people, characters, uh, stories with progression, um, facial features, dialogue, accents, that sort of stuff. All of that sort of dynamic human um, stuff, uh, and and I, and I guess that's. The way my brain works, I'm trying to trying to find a place to start from. Like, is what are the most trustworthy? Um, you know, you mentioned the dog. 
like that and it might elicit warmth okay so is that basically like number one in the uh, if you're trying to make people feel warm cute puppy that's the way to go you know yeah great question um and if we think about lemon uh, and, and the findings in lemon um you know i wasn't involved in that study but i imagine to get to those findings there was a, a he a team of human coders who went through every ad themselves sitting there watching the ad saying right okay there's a there's a face there it's smiling here you know there's human interaction there and that was done in a very manual process which is perfectly possible to do but obviously it, it takes a long time and it's quite expensive to do because you've got to pay people to do it uh, what we're doing is automating that process and automating that data collection by accessing these computer vision APIs, which are available now. And then, but not just, you don't just plug into a single API and think that you're done. You take a bunch of the raw outputs from several APIs and you build on top of them to create useful and interesting aggregations, which don't necessarily come out of the, the raw APIs. There's a bunch of work that you have to do to get to useful creative attribute data, but it's possible to automate that whole process. And once you've done that, then you understand the creative attributes which are driving certain emotions. And yes, to answer your question, you can then output like the, the things which are most highly related to trust. But I would caution against like coming to us and asking, okay, well, I, I want to evoke warmth. So what are, you, what are the things that are going to evoke warmth most effectively? Um, because it really depends, like, so much depends on your target audience. So much depends on the country you're operating in. So much depends on your brand as well, and, and what creative attributes will work for your brand. So just to say that we're not, we wouldn't suggest for a second that if you want to evoke warmth, you should always put a dog in your ad because yes, dogs do evoke warmth, but it might be totally different for your brand. You, you, all your competitors might be using dogs and so you're, never, you're not going to gain cut through for your particular brand doing that you know your your target audience might be cat lovers you know you know so the answer is yes we can output that data but i wouldn't suggest that it's particularly useful on its own it's they're, they're interesting to grab headlines and and you know yeah. talk about trends but but for an individual brand there's a lot more nuance that needs to be considered yeah yeah of course um so since launching david um Firstly, actually, it just occurred to me, why David? Why is it called David? Obviously, it's spelled slightly differently for those. Um, obviously, most people will be listening. It's D-A-I-V-I-D, -D -I -D, and the A-I is um, uh, accentuated in your logo. Um, but um, so, so why did you come up with the name David, just out of interest? Good question. So we wanted the name to mean something on its own. So AI video, if you don't know anything about us and you see the name David, AI video kind of comes out. And also there's this element of David versus Goliath. So we're the new kids on the block. We're nimble and agile. We've got new technology, which the big boys, uh, kind of the you know, big lumbering beasts with their old tech and quite slow to innovate because they're huge corporations. And so we're the, the new kids on the block. That's the idea. Fair enough. Okay, uh, I, uh, makes sense. So, since launching David, then what, what have you learned about effective advertising and, and how to produce it? If I know it's reducing things to headlines and um, and it's not, you know, nothing is, is as simple as we're going to try and make it out. But if you had to give top your top three tips of creating effective advertising, um, what would you say you've learned um, in your journey so far? Great question. Um, 
Um, I'm trying to be original here. <laughs> there, there are some obvious ones that like capture attention, right? In, in the first second. I mean, everyone's banging on about attention right now. And look, absolutely rightly so, because attention is, is totally critical. We have this effectiveness process at David, which everything at David is founded on. And first of all, the first part of the effectiveness process is capture attention. And then once you've got attention, you've got to do something with it. And that something is about an intense, positive emotional response, because that then creates the memory structure which drives the action. So attention is absolutely critical. It's totally fundamental. And you've got to be capturing attention in the first second these days, because people just don't give your ad much more than that. Like if, you, if you haven't captured their attention in the first second, they're off. But don't get fixated on attention. Attention, attention is not the be all and end all. It's just the first hurdle you have to overcome once you've captured attention you've got to do something with it and that means an emotion emotional response which we've been discussing because it's super super important um also learnings around formats and how formats should be used you know a lot of brands still put you know 15 30 second ads on facebook and, and wonder why they're performing super badly you know facebook is not a brand building platform what we've learned like it's that there are certain ways of advertising which build your brand. Like NeuroInsight call it the brand room in your head, right? Yeah. It's this brand room analogy. Like you're sure, like yeah, furnishing the brand room. Talking about the brand rooms and Cadbury's and being purple with a little drumming gorilla in the corner. Exactly. Stuff. Quite a nice, uh, nice way of picturing it. Exactly. And, so, and certain advertising furnishes the brand room and certain formats furnish the brand room, i.e. they're going to build that emotional picture in your head about a brand. And TV does that brilliantly, uh, non-skippable YouTube. But Facebook is not going to furnish that brand room, or it's highly unlikely to. It, instead, where Facebook and, and out of home and display is just turning the light on in the room. It's just reminding you of all the things that you've thought of about the brand before, but it's not going to build the brand. And advertisers just need to remember that and understand that they've only got like three or four seconds of attention potentially to play with on Facebook before people have scrolled onto something else. And so how do you remind the consumer of your brand in that situation? And so we're doing a lot of work with brands right now around taking the hero content from the campaign, which might be a 30 second TVC, and then using that asset and the distinctive assets within the asset to best effect out of home and on Facebook. So so pulling out the key parts, the key moments, the most emotional moments, which you should use for your Facebook video or for your out of home, because that's turning the light on in the most effective way for that particular platform. So the use of platforms is really, really important as well. And the last thing I would say um, is this idea of brand integralness. This comes down to the memory piece. So attention, emotions, memory, because it's possible to create really strong memory structures using really emotive content, but your brand isn't part of that memory structure because the brand played little to no part in the story. And so what we found is the best way to create those useful memory structures is to make sure that the brand is integral to the storyline such that if you remove the brand, the storyline no longer works. It's not about creating a beautiful film and then sticking a logo on the end. People are like, well, what the hell has that brand got yeah. to do with that creative? You know, that we all I think a lot of car have been guilty of that in the past, haven't they? You see these roads with no cars on them and they're all driving along and everything, but when you, they're, they're all so similar that 
by by the end of it, you're not you, you kind of remember that car ride, but you can't remember what one it was for because yeah, they, they, exactly. they don't like the muchness. Exactly, exactly. So, and you can interchange any car brand for any other. And I just drop in a Mercedes or drop in a BMW or whatever, and it's the same ad. So make your brand integral to the storyline. So think about your brand's personality and brand values, what makes it unique, and the stories that it uniquely can tell and make sure it does. So then if you remove the brand, it's, it, it no longer works. That then drives that valuable memorability. It's not just memorable, but it's valuable because it's memorability, which is delivered around your brand. Yeah. You mentioned um, platforms there, and I, and I totally agree that you know, horses for courses and and, and using the right platform in the right way uh, for the right part of your of, of your marketing is obviously key. I was talking about that um, in a recent episode with uh, Mike Follett from Lumen Research and Michelle Randall from Digital Turbine. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Lumen and T-Vision had put together a, a joint study showing attention by platform and format. And it seems that the the highest attention in terms of seconds of attention on average and aggregate, obviously this is not um, for every ad and every format on on every platform, but it was they they were all very much video based. So it was cinema, it was TV, it was um, non skippable rewarded video, it was full screen sight, sound, and motion, and the ability to tell stories, typically entertainment based, typically story led. Um, does that? Does that sort of feed in with um, your idea of, you know, eliciting emotion? You can obviously do it with a picture. You could have a picture of a crying baby or, or, or you know, whatever. But it's it feels to me that it's much easier to elicit um, emotions if you have more um, elements at your disposal. So sight, sound, motion, um, you know, facial expressions, accents, all of that sort of stuff is you, you need video for, right? Is that – does that sort of um, – do your findings support that or would you say that it's a, it's a mixture of display video audio you know what, what are your findings i'm rambling no, our, our findings totally support that 100 um video is more emotive than, than image or text or um or a combination of image or text or or even audio the audio can be extremely emotive um but yeah with, with video you have the, the full gamut of both the vision and the oral nature of it, um, and and so that in itself is is naturally it tends to be more emotive. But then the other thing around formats is like, the immersive nature of the format. So you know, cinema, huge screen. You know, you, you can't w- look anywhere else. You're watching on TV, you, you know, you, you may be multitasking, but it's a big screen. It's in front of you. It's playing to the end again. YouTube's good for it's playing to the end. So you have longer versus on Facebook. You know, the screen, you're competing on with the screen, on the screen, like your ad, your ad is competing with a bunch of other stuff yeah. where the people could be looking. This is why TikTok is so powerful because it's full screen and it tends to be sound on. And you're not watching also, anything it's else. It's people, right? It's people talking to people. So you've got even the brand stuff on TikTok is really character led. It's like, it's very people shaped, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, which is why, of course, creators are so big now because, um, there's a lot of people talking to camera, people talking about their lives and people, creators, influencers, forming a really strong bond with their audience. So their audience choose to, chooses to follow them and chooses to consume their content because they really like their influence and they feel like they become friends with them because they see them 
in their lives every single day and they feel like they're following them and, and literally following them around in their in their homes and, and seeing what they do so they feel they have that personal connection which then again amplifies that emotional response when you ally that to the full screen nature and the fact that those consumers are, are there to consume that content you know they're not there to speak to their friends on facebook and you're interrupting their experience they're there to consume that content which just makes influencer content super super powerful yeah yeah, so, um, so I imagine this scenario where um, the CMOs um, briefed the creative agency, they've gone away and they've come back three months later, spent an eye-watering amount of money on this wonderful creative. They all sit around and look at it for the first time and think, yeah, I think we've cracked it. And then they give it to you and you test it and you go, yeah, no, people don't really find it. I'm um, not getting too much uh, of an emotional response out of it, which is probably the worst case scenario. It makes you really unpopular, even though you're doing your job. So how do you get involved earlier in that creative process to make sure that that doesn't happen, that you're not basically marking the homework once the homework's done at a very expensive um, bill and then it's kind of a little bit too late because, like, you know, the investment's there. How do you get involved earlier to help sort of shape that creative process? So, I mean, the first thing to say is we are testing out a creative you know, once it's been made and we haven't been part of the of the process to get there. And there's still a lot of value in that, of course, because you can understand if it's working or not, but critically why and therefore what you should do about it. And then and, and big improvements can be made to creative as a result of generating that insight. So that's still a, a valuable thing. And you know, you're not always necessarily that popular, but you know, for the good of the brand, it's you know, it's a good thing that you're that you're there because the end result is much better. But that said, it is a great question around, like, I guess, how best to use David. And the more upstream we can be involved, you know, the more we can have an impact on the, the creative strategy. So we have a suite of products called Brand Strategy. They all sit underneath Brand Strategy is kind of the umbrella. But then underneath that are different products which our clients are using to help to inform that ideation process. So one is audience strategy where we're helping our clients understand how to speak to a particular audience. So we're working with a bank in Singapore, for instance. These guys are trying to speak to high net worth millennials. They're obviously used to speaking to high net worth people, but they've never spoken to such young high net worth before. And their classic content and comms is just not landing with these people. It's just, they know it's not resonating. They can see their engagement rates on social, for instance, are, are terrible. And so they, they don't know what to do. They don't know why their content is working with the older people, but, but not the younger high net worth. And so that's where we come in to try to, to help that brand understand how to evoke positive emotions among high net worth millennials and how to avoid evoking negative emotions. A lot of the time it's about the avoidance of the negative, which brands find really hard. So there's that whole audience side of things that we can get involved with. There's also category analyses that we can do. So we can understand how a brand is positioned versus its competitive set. So there we'd, we'd analyze a bunch of creative from the brand itself and its immediate competitors to see who's winning and who's losing. Um, so that this can, can be done in conjunction with the social analysis that often is. So we, perhaps we'll look at Instagram and we'll look at the brand versus key competitors to see who's winning and who's losing on the platform in terms of those social metrics. But then we'd explain that performance with our approach around attention and emotions. And that is often combined with what we call an emotional positioning map, where we're understanding the emotions which are being evoked by the brand and its competitive set. And that's really powerful because 
when a brand can evoke an unusual emotion versus its competitors, just by being different, it's going to stand out. So John Hegarty used to say, zig when the world zags. He didn't say quite why that was powerful. The reason it's powerful is that when you do that, you evoke an unusual emotional response and you stand out versus the crowd. In the advertising world, it's... It's if there's, um, we, we mentioned it with the car adverts before, if there's 15 car ads that are all going down a dusty track with no cars on it, and then you have one, um, I don't know, on the ice, that one's going to stand out because it's completely different. Um, Dave Trott talks about that, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he said it was called Gestalt. It's, it's yeah, Zig, when the world zags, or be different, distinct. Exactly. And that difference evokes a different emotional response. So, and that's what causes it to be memorable. So we're kind of that, that's kind of the, the the method of action. And so if you can analyze a category, and you can understand which emotions are being evoked by certain brands in the category, then you can see which emotions are being evoked. But you can also see which emotions are not being evoked within that category. We call it the emotional white space. And if a brand can move into that emotional white space, just by being different, it's going to stand out. You add intensity to that difference, and that's where the magic happens. So essentially, we're doing these category analyses to determine that emotional white space and help our brands move into it. Um, and the last thing we can do, sorry to drone on, but uh, another really cool part of that product, the brand strategy product, is meta-analyses that we can do where we ingest a bunch of data which the brand provides us with. So that could be media data, social data, brand left data, brand tracking data, sales data, any and all of the above. But critically, the kind of data which the brands are sitting on is the what is happening kind of data. And David brings the why. So they'll be seeing that, for example, some of our ads result in great sales. Others don't. We're working with a convenience store in Japan who have this exact situation. They can see some of their ads are driving great sales, others not. That's the what, the why. We then test that creative, draw out the why, which is around attention, emotions, memory structure, which audience members are working for. That then generates a bunch of insight, which the brand can then use to set their strategy going forward. And that kind of meta-analysis is super powerful because the brand is already sitting on all this super powerful data, but the insight is kind of lying dormant within it. And we bring that insight out and help them improve their strategy going forward. Okay. You talked about getting upstream in the creative process there and got my mind thinking. I mean, it might it may be too expensive or too long-winded, I don't know, but have you ever or could you ever get involved at the um, um, the casting stage? So um, uh, uh, the creative agency have come up with an idea. This is going to be the story. We now need a star and a co-star to, to be in that, and we're going to get them to audition. And then you then test the different auditions against three different soundtracks depending on which one they want to go for and figure out which one has the most emotional resonance before they then hire the actor or actress uh, or music um, score um, and move ahead with the with you know the full-on production mm, that's really interesting i hadn't thought about that before i mean we are we're working on scripts and animatics and testing those for clients so we can get involved at a super early stage in, in the creative process but casting that's not something i'd thought about certainly soundtracks we can um, we can comment on like which a big part of what we do is ingest um music data um working with some partners uh, some computer vision api partners understanding the um 
the the pace of the music and the the kind of instruments used and the and the mood of the music and all of these things have a big impact on the emotion so absolutely we can comment on the soundtrack on the actor being used yeah i mean once the ai is fully up and running we'll be able to if you give us like one actor's i guess audition tape versus the other we will be able to tell you what the system thinks uh, the, the emotions which are going to be evoked by each of those a- actors and we'll be able to say well based on the data we've collected we feel that actor b is better than actor a yeah so yeah it could be used in that way that's interesting cool okay um so any um any final thoughts on um how how marketers could best use you to make their advertising more effective um as a first step. So let's say at the moment they're not doing this. Um, it's kind of very much subjective and it's in the eye of the creator of, as to whether it's good or not. How, how should somebody get started with um, tracking emotional responses in order to um, make their advertising more effective? So one simple first step is just run a content test, right? And, and, and see what comes out, see how you can improve the emotional response to a particular piece of creative that you've got. Um, and that can be run either as a pre-test and then we can make, make a bunch of edit- edits before it goes live or as a post-test. So you're learning for future, really simple way, a more interesting way. And this is where we're getting involved, involved with a lot of brands right now is to come to us with a question. So that brand strategy stuff that I was talking about earlier, all of those projects are super consultative and they all start with the question which the brand is looking to answer. And every brand's got a question that they're trying to answer, right? They, they've all got a challenge, a competitive challenge, new competitors entering the market, you know, that didn't exist three or four years ago. Um, inflation hurting consumer confidence, moving into new countries, you, you, you name it. There are a million questions that we get asked. And the cool thing about what we've built is that essentially it's a toolkit and we can bring that toolkit to bear in different ways, depending on the question which the client is asking us. So I would say, hit me up, ian at david.co, D-A-I-V-I-D.co. Um, sorry for the shameless plug. Just send me a question. This is the problem we're trying to solve for. How would you guys solve it? And I can say, right, this is how we'd approach it. And we can That'd be quite an interesting one you, kind of, you mentioned there, actually. Sorry to talk over you there, uh, Ian, but um, cr- an, an advert being created in the US, let's say, and now they want to roll it out across the world. But before they do that, they want to make sure that the emotions that it creates in the US are the same in the UK or in France or in Germany, because obviously with different cultures, different languages, um, you know, different contexts of, of, of the consumer in all of those different countries, it may it may end up being super annoying in one country and, um, you know, completely different in another. So um, that, that would be quite a good, interesting use case. I know in Absolutely. B2B, a lot, a lot of trying to take um, an advertising creative from one country where it was created and then try to repurpose that, for want of a better term, across multiple territories is a big challenge that marketers in, in B2B have. Um, it'd be quite interesting, I think, maybe to um, to figure out how you how you deliver something built in one country across multiple countries that, that that could be an interesting use case right totally and we're often used in that way um in fact we're speaking to a big japanese agency who are helping multinational clients enter japan because i mean japan's a perfect example in that kind of case because it's so different culturally that content just 
often resonates very, very differently. Like global content launched in Japan either can really work work brilliantly well or can absolutely bomb. And these multinationals just don't really understand the why. And so, you know, that's a big use case in Japan, but absolutely like global campaigns being launched across different countries. Interestingly, we often find that campaigns are working well across lots of different countries, i.e. they're evoking intense positive emotions, but the kind of emotions they're evoking are different depending on the country. It doesn't necessarily matter. You're, you're still resulting in the emotion, which then will result in the memory structure being created. But the, the emotions which are being evoked, you know, what, what an American might find very funny, a German might find very surprising. Both are good outcomes for the brand, but the emotion itself is very different. Yeah. So really interesting space. Yeah, for sure. Ian, it was an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time and thanks for being on the Six Souls podcast. Likewise. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me.